history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy Illyri. What are you drinking and thinking about today? Hi, I don't know why I'm waving. <laughs> my benefit and no one else's. <laughs> uh, so I am about to crap. Crap? <laughs> <laughs> Great start. <laughs> Do you need five minutes? Shall I, shall I pause? <laughs> no, I'll just do it here while I talk. Okay. Um, I'm about to crack open a bottle of Krabbies. Ah. Without crapping. Yep. There she is. So, yeah. Krabbies, ginger beer, because it's getting a bit cold out. Autumn's coming in. Wanted a bit of spice in my life. I'm thinking about Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Halloween. Um, ever had that response whilst crapping before <laughs> it was the first time for everything i mean what other kind of responses are you used to i suppose is the question <laughs> please stop ma'am this is debenhams <laughs> could you not be 45 <laughs> <laughs> um i am drinking kubakan Ooh, I don't know what that is. Pudis, Um So it's a whiskey. It's a whiskey by Tomatin. And Kubakan roughly translates as ghost dog. And it's named after this legend of a spectral dog who haunts the Highland village um, near Tomatin for, for countless years and has been seen around the distillery uh, by the workers. And, you know, let's remember this is a whiskey distillery. Um, <laughs> and after initially running away, the worker felt compelled to go and touch the dog's fur, because of course you would. Who doesn't want to touch the doggy, even if it is a ghost dog? Um, <laughs> and he says, as he reached out, uh, the dog dissipated into a plume of ghostly smoke over the moorlands. And so for one week every year, they uh, make a peated whiskey, which they don't normally make instead of their traditionally unpeated uh, whiskies. And they call that batch Kubakan, the ghost dog. And that's what I'm having. That is there. a lot of legwork that one brand manager's done. <laughs> I know. I mean, actually, this is a this is a few years old. I got it when I was in Scotland, maybe two or three years ago. And the brand has actually evolved since then. And now it's just like their sort of hipster alternative brand where they do uh -huh. mixes with other things like a uh, Japanese uh, shochu as well and some other stuff so they've moved away from the sort of Highland Moor ghost dog to this is just like our alternative brand of experimental whiskies but I like the old ghost dog version because it's Halloween exactly how apt and it gives you an excuse to drink whiskey tonight and it gives me an excuse to drink whiskey because it's cold <laughs> um, so I thought we'd uh, maybe do a bit of talking about horror drinks and then a little talking about drinks in horror. Sound okay. good? Um, and where do we start? Well, I, I think the obvious place you have to start is with the Bloody Mary. 
Like when you say to me, what's a horror drink? It's the Bloody Mary. I hate to say it, but I'm not a fan of a Bloody Mary. Mate, I'm not a fan of Bloody Mary either. Our, oh. our um, disfavour of vodka is well-trodden, I think already, mm. but yeah. I don't like tomato juice, which is oh, really weird so because, you know, I love all vegetables, a vegetable feed and I love tomatoes, but I just, it doesn't, it does something weird to me. It's just all, all kinds of no for me. I've mm. never liked juice. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about its history and its meaning and its cultural significance. Um, no, please do. Disgusting. <laughs> so the Bloody Mary, obviously, as we said, is tomato juice and vodka um, at its early stages. And then there's so many variations and additions you can do on top of that. So spices, Worcestershire sauce, hot sauces, garlic, herbs, horseradish, celery, olives, salt, black pepper, lemon juice, lime juice. You get it. Um, yeah. And some there's even... Turn... Like intense flavours as well. Like there's a lot of flavours there that people don't like. It's like, uh, yes. how can you make this works? I don't know, put some olives in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and some of them get even more elaborate. So the idea is that you kind of get a a breakfast drink and a, a meal or a brunch as well. So they do like surf and turf versions where you put shrimp and bacon mm. on as garnishes. Um, you know, the idea is it's going to shock your system and be a hangover cure. You know, it's meant to be a hangover cure because it's got the vegetables to settle your stomach. It's got the salts to replace your electrolytes. It's got um, the alcohol to, you know, numb your pain and a bit of hair of the dog. Cold pizza can of coke. <laughs> Have a little fry and go back to bed. Don't do that to yourself. <laughs> Isn't um, cold pizza and a can of Coke called the Swansea Bloody Mary? <laughs> That's, uh, it's more at market than that in Swansea. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we know it probably comes from the 1920s or 30s, but we don't necessarily know who or where. Uh, there's a French bartender called Fernand Petiot who says he invented it in 1921. Um, there isn't any written record of that. That's according to his own, his own testimonies and his granddaughter. He was working at, and this gets confusing, the New York Bar in Paris, which later became Harry's New York Bar. But Harry's New York Bar is in Paris. But lots of Americans go there. It's like we talked about Ernest Hemingway being a big lush before. He went there all the time. And they invented a few cocktails, like the sidecar and the white lady and other things. So there's, there's definitely some credence to this claim um, that they created vodka and tomato juice as a cocktail on the spur of the moment. But we also have a counterclaim a little bit later, 1930-ish, from the 21 Club, Club 21, which is um, based in New York. So not the New York bar in Paris, but a New York bar in New York. And the bartender is Henry Zvibivitz, who was mixing all the Bloody Marys, but they attribute it to a comedian called George Jessel, who uh, frequented the club a lot. And he said that it was like his, his pick-me-up that he liked, which was half tomato juice and half vodka. And Petio, by 34, is now not in Paris, but in New York, bartending. And he says that he is the one who has turned it into the modern Bloody Mary, as we would know. He's working at the King Cole Room in a, in a New York's St. Regis Hotel. So he says, I initiated the Bloody Mary of today. Jessel said he created it, but it was really nothing but vodka and tomato juice when I took it over. 
I cover the bottom of the shaker with four large dashes of salt, two dashes of black pepper, two dashes of cayenne pepper, and a layer of Worcestershire sauce. I then add a dash of lemon and some cracked ice, put in two ounces of vodka and two ounces of thick tomato juice, shake, strain and pour, and we serve 100 to 150 Bloody Marys a day here in the King Cole room and in other restaurants and the banquet rooms. So pretty convinced he at least had something to do with it, but as I found repeatedly with the cocktails, you never know where it came, whether it came from Europe or the US first, because there was so much cultural interchange, particularly with drinks between them. And then it gets elaborated on in the 1940s by various advertisers. So the Worcestershire sauce maker, French, kind of put out an ad in Life saying you could add Worcestershire sauce to a virgin tomato juice cocktail, along with tomato juice, salt and pepper. And Life magazine did this spread where they said this cocktail is called a red hammer and that was tomato juice, vodka and lemon juice. So it's forming in various kind of permutations around that time. And then kind of speaking of the variations, in the UK, you will probably more often find accompanying it a red snapper, which is when you use gin instead of vodka. Mm -hmm. uh, or sometimes called a ruddy Mary here. <laughs> if you have, if you put absinthe instead of vodka, can you guess what it's called then? Neck it. <laughs> Close. Oh wait, chin it. I don't know. Whatever it is, I shout. What's what's absinthe called? What's its nickname? Oh, the Green Fairy. Yeah. It's so. the, the bloody Green Mary. <laughs> the bloody fairy. Oh, I was gonna say the bloody the Green Mary. <laughs> the Green Mary. <laughs> I was trying to test out your instant branding uh uh branding. <laughs> Brad, oh, brain oh, karma. Karma. yeah yeah that really was wasn't it that was karma i was trying to shame you and then i just kind of full stop a virgin mary which is a non-alcoholic version is also known as a bloody virgin which i think is disgusting or if you're in australia they call it a bloody shame ah, i like that good, good yeah <laughs> um so where does the name come from Obviously, you might know Bloody Mary from history, being Queen Mary I of England, who was nicknamed Bloody Mary. There's no evidence that it's based on her at all. Um, mm -hmm. But Bloody Mary, you know, she Mary first got this really bad reputation for persecuting religious people, persecuting Protestants. And they said, oh, she killed so many Protestants that they called her Bloody Mary. She actually didn't kill as many people <laughs> as Elizabeth I or Henry VIII in terms of religious persecution. But uh, Elizabeth I and her fans and the anti-Catholics kind of had the last say on it. Uh, so they wrote, you know, Fox's Book of Martyrs, which uh, created stories of all the, pe all the people that had been martyred horribly by Mary. And that gave her that reputation of being Bloody Mary. And also Elizabeth I was kind of smart enough or evil enough, depending on which way you want to look at it, to charge the uh, religious Catholics not with any offence of religion, but as treason against the crown. So all the people she persecuted were traitors rather than, you know, people who just persecuted for religion. So that might have been part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, also, there's some thought that it might have been named after Mary Pickford, who was a very famous Hollywood star at the time. 
I don't think there's anything more to that. Then they're like, she's a famous Mary. There's apparently a waitress named Mary who worked at a Chicago bar called the Bucket of Blood. And some people think it was named in her honor, someone's girlfriend who works in a cabaret called the Bucket of Blood. So it comes up twice, Mary Bucket of Blood. Sounds made up to me. Mm -hmm. And the other one, which I think is quite interesting, before I get into the folklore of Bloody Mary, which it could also have been named after, is that there's some suggestion that it's a corruption of um, a Slavic name so that people couldn't pronounce a particular Slavic name, the name Vladimir. And Mm -hmm. the reason why that has some credibility is because, as we said earlier, Fernand Petiot, who said he created it in... 1921, when he was working at the New York bar in Paris, was serving of Vladimir Smirnov of the Smirnov vodka family. So it's possible that he created an impromptu cocktail of tomato juice and vodka for the vodka family son, Vladimir, and it turns into Bloody Mary. But who knows? We don't know. It's mysterious. I always thought it was the infamously mean-hearted Mary Berry. (laughs) <laughs> because she's such a lush yeah she is a lush and she that she can give you some dirty looks i wouldn't cross her yeah you know it's a theory um and <laughs> who knows she was probably in that bar in the 1920s lushing it up in paris exactly she's looking good for her age mary berry yeah i mean yeah in fairness mary's probably not 99 years old and probably wasn't in a bar as a baby so, <laughs> wild accusations I made there. <laughs> so, do you know about the the Bloody Mary of folklore? I do not. You never, you were never sort of goaded to um, go and look in a bathroom mirror and say Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. Mm, I think we had very different childhoods. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought everyone did that. <laughs> You were you were too busy playing Nintendo, weren't you? <laughs> I was um, trying to summon demons. <laughs> I was too busy chinning the Green Marys or whatever they're called. <laughs> chinning Green Mary, hun. You have had a past. Okay, so there's this um, uh, there's this kind of uh, folklore about a figure called Bloody Mary who apparently appears to individuals or groups who ritualistically invoke her name. Um, When you um, do sort of divination and stuff in front of a mirror, it's called catoptromancy. Just a little fact for you there. And so you chant her name into a mirror or you're in um, a dimly lit room. And sometimes they say it three times, sometimes uh, they say it 13 times, which sounds like a bore. And then she apparently appears either as a corpse or a witch or a ghost, and she could be friendly or evil. And sometimes she's covered in blood. Uh, sometimes she'll appear screaming at you or cursing or strangling you, stealing your soul, drinking your blood, scratching your eyes out. There are all kinds of variations. Sometimes she's called Hell Mary, sometimes Mary Worth. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like, I think partly this comes from an older ritual, which was supposed to be that young women could walk up a flight of stairs backwards holding a candle and a hand mirror in a darkened house. And as they gaze into the mirror, 
they're supposed to be able to catch the view of their future husband's face. You get a lot of rituals like that come up around Halloween, you know, and around winter solstice and stuff. Like if you can peel an apple whole, it will spell out the initials of your lover. And there's, there's a lot of rituals to do with young women and finding their future husbands for some reason. But um, you, you might be unlucky enough to be walking up backwards up the stairs. And if you don't fall over to your death, you might catch a sight of uh, a skull in the mirror of a grim reaper. And that means that you're going to die before you have a chance to marry. So I think it partly comes from that. But you do also find these kinds of stories and rituals in other cultures, particularly in Japan. So over there, they have the legend of Hanako-san. Um, which is pretty much the same, she, except she exclusively appears to you in bathrooms, um, in bathroom mirror, and uh, rather than kind of like summoned as a, as a ritual in a darkened room. But, you know, Japan is a very ghost-filled culture, for one that isn't sort of strictly religious, but they do believe in, you know, the spirits of things. They have ghosts everywhere, and ghosts to them are so much a reality. And you see that in their horror films, like particularly as it comes through the 90s and the noughties with you know, things like The Ring and The Grudge and all this kind of business. And it's because they've they got, had such an established uh, folklore of this kind of thing coming from the 1950s onwards of Hanako-san. Mm-hmm. So there you go. That's, that's Bloody Mary, but I find no evidence that the drink Bloody Mary is named after the folklore of Bloody Mary. But seeing as it's Halloween, I had to make that connection. <laughs> I think I didn't have that as good. I think we were too busy doing the whole Mary Lloyd thing. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Mary Lloyd. Tell that's me. That's not Halloween. It's just something that used to terrify me. Tell me about um, it. You, you, you have seen it. It's when they uh, dress like a, the skull of a horse in like a big long sheet behind it and it like travels around the village uh, yes and they do like a bit of wassail with it and then they knock on the doors and the horse it's basically like a party horse it comes in it comes in and you've got to like feed it and give it drink and stuff <laughs> <laughs> this is all so wicker man i love it <laughs> this is what happens when you don't live in um uh an english city <laughs> Gonna parade around with animal carcasses and sheets and feed them. And when you said Mary Lloyd, I instantly thought of the English musical singer, and I'm like, she doesn't mean her. You don't even no, know who that is, do you? No. She was like a sort of knees up Mother Brown, London um, English hall singer, very popular, very funny actually. She loved comedy songs and stuff. She always performed in Hoxton Hall. Nothing to do with dead horses or Halloween, but there you go. <laughs> The dead horse thing was isn't even for Halloween, so I just thought I'd bring it up because that that was used to scare me as a child, not the kind of whole Bloody Mary in a mirror thing. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> My thing wasn't real. Yours very much was. <laughs> oh, I have a word. Right. <laughs> so um speaking of drinking blood. Yeah. Bloody Marys. I thought I'd look into clinical vampirism and see how much of a thing it actually was. I'd love to see what kind of targeted ads you have had this week since research. Um, would it surprise you to know they haven't been any different? <laughs> uh, so I, I sort of thought I knew that the human body does not like to drink blood. I thought I've got a vague memory of this somewhere. It can make you very ill. And indeed it can. 
Uh, I was right. You can have about tea, two teaspoons. You okay, Anne? Yeah, I'm all right. Two teaspoons of blood before you become very queasy, which isn't very much, of human blood. Mm. Um, and, you know, if you have any more than that, you're going to get seriously ill. Essentially, because you get iron poisoning. Right? There's too much iron in our blood to digest, and it stores up, like, in your, in your liver and your kidneys and all this sort of stuff, and your body goes into pretty much full shutdown. It's not so bad with animal blood, but you still can't drink much of it. So like if you have steaks and blood sausages and stuff, you probably won't get ill, but what you don't want to be doing is drinking more of it. I know it's, it's grim, isn't it? Yeah. But I thought I needed to look into the truth of that before I thought, well, did anyone actually ever try it? Because that's the thing, like how can you have a recurring syndrome like this if it would make you so terribly ill? And mm-hmm. I'm glad I did do that because as it turns out, there is very there are very few cases very little evidence for actual vampirism um mm-hmm. it's now commonly known as renfield syndrome so if you read if you read dracula no i've not read it it's renfield is one of the characters in it he's the one that's sort of in the um insane asylum it's being observed by dr seward and he's zoophagus he, he sort of takes to eating creatures that he catches in his cell isn't he keeps chanting the blood is the life so he's sort of named after this human who becomes obsessed to eating animals and getting their blood but that was only done in um 1992 i think it was let me have a quick look yeah something like that so basically a guy a guy created this term, yeah, 1992. Richard Knoll is his name. He coined this term of Renfield syndrome as a sort of satire because psychiatry had this big explosion in the 1980s where people were creating all kinds of new, you know, syndromes and diagnoses and all this sort of stuff rather than going back to some of the, uh, I was going to say original, some of the older habits of what exactly are their symptoms? Let's tick that off and not try and create a narrative of it. If you know what I mean, let's see what the brain is doing rather than um, what the story is behind this. So he created this as a sort of piss take of new psychiatric speak. Problem was, it really caught on <laughs> and everyone started using it and saying it was a real thing. And he's like, oh, no, I created a monster when he looked back on it um, 20 years later. <laughs> of creating a supposed mental disorder, which he just made up and doesn't really exist. <laughs> so I thought that was quite funny. Um, but yeah, they, they, they say that they found about 50,000 people who have partaken of drinking blood since 1892, which is when the book came out. 1897. Sorry. But that's still not very many and it's not like through habit. They said of the people they found, almost all of it was down to schizophrenia or paraphilia, which is when you become intensely sexually aroused by like an object or a fantasy or a situation. So there's nothing in the act of drinking blood in itself, which is aside from an existing disorder, if you see what I mean. So that's why yeah. it's not a real thing. I think I can kind of relate with the paraphilia thing. That's how I feel when I have Purezza pizza. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> with that, I like that we've, we've already come, I mean, it's early days and we've already come full circle back to your pizza and the cold coke hangover. Drinking blood paraphilia. 
Um, I got one more horror drink before I'm going to hand over to you. And okay. That's the zombie. It's like we have to talk about the zombie just as another staple of horror characters. So the yes. zombie is a it's a tiki cocktail. I'm not going to go too far into tiki cocktails because I think we should do it on another episode because it's got an interesting history and it's also a bit um, uh, a bit dodgy. <laughs> a bit, <laughs> still a bit post-colonial. We won't go on that yet. So it appears in 1934, invented by Don Beach um, at Don the Beach Coma Restaurant. And then it gets popularized around the US after that at the, the World's Fair. And again, it's a hangover cure. So... Yeah, he concocted it to help a hungover customer get through a business meeting. And the customer came back several days later, so the story goes. You know how there's always a story which you know probably isn't true attached to cocktails. He comes back several days later and complains that um, he'd been turned into a zombie for his entire trip because it was so alcoholic. And, I mean, he's right. (laughs) Let me tell you what's in it. It's 45 mils of Jamaican dark rum, 45 mils of Puerto Rican gold rum, 30 mils of Demerara rum, 20 mils of lime juice, 15 mils of falernum. Um, falernum is uh, like a ginger, lime and almond and sort of cloves and all spice liqueur, which may or may not be alcoholic, depending on which one you use. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some grapefruit and cinnamon syrup, some grenadine, some Angostura bitters and six drops of perno. So you're talking somewhere between five and six shots of alcohol, depending on which version you make, which is quite a lot for one cocktail. <laughs> I've bars in London that serve it, and the ones that are serving like the really strong stuff, they, are, um, they do have a limit on how many you can order in one night. Yep. You're quite right. Even in the original, um, even in the original place that they served it, customers were limited to two. They couldn't have more mm-hmm. than two at a time. So if they're going by the original recipe, that's that's still very much the case. Yeah. But this guy was very, um, he's quite secretive with his recipes at first. You know, they were sort of like his brand, his original cocktails, and he used to use coded references to the ingredients uh, for instructions to his bartenders because he was so worried that they were going to get stolen. And I mean, in fact, one was, one was copied at the 1939 New York World's Fair, who, some guy called Monty Prosa, um, who was, who then went to kind of the Copacabana, which is this sort of big mob tiki bar. (laughs) (laughs) So there were a lot of like, it it got quite serious, the copyright contention between people who owned certain nefarious bars around New York at that time. It's a whole other story. But it got published in um, a a book called Sipping Safari. Um, afterwards and that's when it became kind of public knowledge what was in it and you can also have it hot there's a hot zombie oh i think i like that yeah which is slightly different ingredients uh lime pineapple juice bitters one ounce of rum uh heavily bodied rum two ounces of gold label rum one ounce of white label rum one ounce of apricot flavored brandy and one ounce of papaya juice so it's still pretty hefty but it's um it's a little bit different and served hot I think if we manage to see each other again before next spring, we should talk about that. Yeah, it's um, it's not my usual list of ingredients, but I think it's worth a go for the authenticity and to see how zombified we get. And also, we should watch a zombie film 
Why would you? <laughs> yes. I'm saying Sorry. I reckon for that, if we go like full tiki, a sort of embarrassing, garish look, we'd have to go for Dawn of the Dead. Which one? Dawn Dawn of the Dead. That's the second George Romero film. Oh, do you I'm mean sure which, which which version of that film? Yeah. Oh, the original. Yeah. Okay. The original. They're 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 trapped in a shopping mall, and it's all about consumerism. Yeah. You've got these zombies trying to use like shopping trolleys, and it's just so good. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not going to get lots of zombies and watching that, please. <laughs> good, good. Um, I need to uh, sip some of my ghost dog, so over to you for a bit. Yes, I'm going to talk about pumpkins. Ooh. As you're probably aware, there are a lot of drinks to do with pumpkins. Uh, I'm actually going to talk about a non-alcoholic one first. Because <gasps> I feel like we can't really talk about pumpkin drinks and not mention the pumpkin spice latte. Absolutely, we cannot. It is. It has a reputation, doesn't it? It has. It's a cult. It's just <laughs> crazy. Uh, but I, I, I don't like it. Do you like it? Um, I love coffee so much that although I will occasionally partake of a syrup in a coffee when I fancy some, when I fancy a dessert rather than a coffee, I will have that. Mm-hmm. If I fancy a coffee, I just want a black coffee because nothing tastes better than that. I remember when we first met, we were drinking a lot of gingerbread lattes together. Yep. Um, but yeah, and, and I still do love a gingerbread latte. But pumpkin spice, I can take or leave. Preferably leave. I'm not a big fan. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about it. So the pumpkin spice latte, um, most people will think about Starbucks when they think of pumpkin spice latte. Um mm which I think is quite right. Um, it's got a lot to do with Starbucks. They didn't um, invent it. They can't claim that. But apparently, like, the huge fad slash pumpkin spice craze that's just swept the nation slash globe um, can be traced back to when Starbucks started kind of selling it from their coffee shops. So right. they created the fandom. So they were sort and of the been... innovators of commercializing it yeah essentially there were a few people already on the market doing it but um not doing it with enough gusto or noise or interest for it to be a thing that people took much notice of um and starbucks it was back in 2003 they um this was back when they were just making coffees uh they weren't really into the whole seasonal event stuff because at the moment like You've got the Christmas drinks, you've got the fall drinks, the summer drinks. They're just constantly changing the menu. Back then, it wasn't like that at all. Uh, they did do an eggnog latte since the mid-80s. Um, but again, that wasn't like a fad. It was just one of those things that they did for Christmas, and it was a nice thing to do. Um, it wasn't a bestseller. It was just a nice to have. However... In 2003, they had massive success with a peppermint mocha drink, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously just a chocolatey, minty... It's like drinking chocolate. an after eight, isn't it, essentially? Yeah, very, very tasty. <laughs> and that went wild. And so they tasked their kind of R&D department with um, just exploring whether or not that success could be replicated and whether it could be replicated in other seasons. They obviously just wanted to cash in. So uh, 
the product management team and R&D team headed to what they call in Seattle is a liquid lab where they create all their flavours. And they sat down and decided to come up with a flavour for fall and they worked together on 20 different flavours ideas. Um, and then when, when they'd settled on 20 ideas, they then just kind of spoke to customers about them. And at this point, it was pretty much in its infancy. There was nothing to taste. It was just a conversation like, how would you feel about this? What about these flavors? Mm-hmm. And um, the customers weren't really interested in the whole pumpkin pie coffee. It just didn't sit well with them. Bearing in mind, this was back when there weren't many flavored coffees out there. So they were just like, no, I don't want pumpkin in a coffee. That's weird. Yeah. They, want, um, they wanted chocolate and caramel. They just wanted sweet, treat, dessert type, tasty, sugary things. Uh, so they took on board everything the customers had said and they needed to whittle it down to four flavors, which would then be developed into a, a prototype. Um, so they created a chocolate, chocolate caramel drink, obviously, because that's what the people wanted. Mm-hmm. And they had an orange and spice latte, sounds delicious. Mm. And then a cinnamon streusel latte, which later went on to be the cinnamon dolce latte. Um, but just because they were so adamant that this pumpkin thing would work, the fourth one they settled on was a pumpkin pie latte as well. Yeah. Uh, so then it was about creating the taste, sitting down, getting all the flavours together. And when it came to the pumpkin pie latte, as it was you known in the prototype stages, they literally just sat in a room and drank espresso and ate pumpkin pie and just kept doing that until they decided what is it about the pumpkin pie that goes well with it? Is it the pumpkin? Is it this? Is it the pastry? What's working here? Mm-hmm. And that they settled on the pumpkin spice. So it was like, yeah, it's definitely the pumpkin and it's the spice. So then they had to like work out which parts of the spice. Is it the nutmeg? Is it the cinnamon, clove, this, that, and the other? And they spent ages working at the flavour profile. And then as soon as they got it into consumers' uh, mouths, <laughs> they mm. were like, we're on to a winner. This is brilliant. Uh, everyone loves it. Uh, despite what uh, they said way back when, when we just said pumpkin pie latte, they were like, nope, nope, nope. All of a sudden they were drinking it and loving it. And they said explicitly that they didn't want to use syrup they wanted to use a pumpkin sauce because it's a lot heavier and when you drink the coffee with a pumpkin sauce in it in their own words and i'm not a fan of these words it has the same mouthfeel as pumpkin pie ah yes mouthfeel that old one i really hate the word mouthfeel <laughs> it's not as bad as so i i work in the the drinks industry and I hear it a lot in presentations when they're talking about how certain brands are performing within categories. So you'd be looking at like a, I don't know, a white wine Chardonnay category. And then they go through all the brands and they'll show you a chart of who's performing more than more than most. And they say that it's the share of throat. Uh, and it's <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I've seen that video on a certain website. Yeah, so, um, but I think it's still distracted. By the way, just before you continue, I am still distracted by Liquid Lab. Liquid Lab. My my brain can't decide whether Liquid Lab is like a sort of 
Frankenstein's lab crossed with Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, or whether it's some sort of nefarious undersea base in Puget Sound. I'm still thinking about that, just so you know. I would not be able to contain myself as a colleague sitting in a liquid lab talking about mouthfeel. There's just too much. <laughs> but please continue. <laughs> well, I've nearly come to the end, actually. So once they'd uh, nailed the mouthfeel, uh -huh. uh, it was ready to go to market and they were trying to settle on a name because as they discovered way back in the inception stages that pumpkin pie latte was a bit weird for people so they were trying to name it the fall harvest latte but uh, they realized that that didn't really give anything away as to what flavor it was no that could be apples it could be anything it could be all sorts i'd love to have been a fly on the wall and just to know how long they went around houses with it to then just settle on pumpkin spice latte, aka yeah. two yeah. flavors they decided they need to put in the coffee. <laughs> yeah, it's Occam's, Occam's razor, isn't it? Please go for the simplest solution. <laughs> I also like the observation that people never know what they want. It's like, why oh, yeah. bother doing that phase of market research where you go, what do you as a consumer want? Because consumers only have what already exists as a basis for that decision. Exactly. It like negates the idea of invention. Yeah. I mean, they were trying to replicate the success of a peppermint mocha and they asked, asked customers what they want and they said chocolate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... <laughs> exactly. It's, it just anchors me as, as, um, as a user experience person. Asking people to solve the problem of what you should invent as a business is pretty stupid. <laughs> I'm not saying don't test your product. Test it, obviously. Just don't ask people to invent it for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm in total agreement. I, I'd come up with a really bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, they, they didn't call it the Fall Harvest Latte. They called it the Pumpkin Spice Latte. And since 2003, it's made $1.4 billion profit for Starbucks. It's mm. their biggest wow. seller. That's... And speaking of share of throat, yeah. Uh, a bunch of other people, well, pretty much anyone who sells coffee now, tries to create a pumpkin spice latte, but Starbucks mm -hmm. have its throat. And I can see why gingerbread lattes from Starbucks are just something else, in my opinion, compared to everyone else. They've just nailed it. Yeah, well, they've they've put the resources behind perfecting that those flavors, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So oh. why? I was researching pumpkin based drinks. I did, you'll be pleased to know, find some boozy ones. Oh, phew. Starting to panic. It's been antsy. I got really excited researching these because they sounded amazing and I wanted them all. But um, most of them are in America, I'm afraid. Okay. So, first up is the Bailey's Pumpkin Spice Cream, which sounds really good. Ooh. Wow. Uh, during my research, I found some angry UK peeps tweeting them, asking to bring it back. So I'm guessing it was available in the UK way back when. Hmm. Uh, people loved it. I've nagged Baileys to bring it back, but yeah. they have no plans to bring it back to the UK. You know what the problem is with, with those sorts of things, that even if they did, you know, give like a, a pumpkin 
Bailey's version for the UK, they'd have to change the recipe because um, Americans have such sweeter tooths than we do that when yeah. you have a sweet product, even if it's the same brand, you know, the US uses corn syrup and it's very sweet, whereas mm -hmm. we don't, you know, since you use uh, sugar cane or, or whatever. And, um, it's, and we don't put as much sugar in it either. So when they try to do the economics of, is it worth making a whole new recipe just for that one market, they often kind of say no. That's part of the reason it, that it would just be far too sweet for us. Mm, interesting, I didn't know that. Mm. Um, so the other ones I found, Captain Morgan's Spiced Rum do um, for Halloween, they do a, they call it the Jackal Blast, which is a pumpkin spiced rum. And mm -hmm. it comes in a really cool bottle that looks like a pumpkin. It looks awesome. And one of the serving suggestions is to put it in with a chai tea, which I really mm. like. Yeah. Yes. Um, also, pumpkin wine. It's a brand of wine called Winehaven Pumpkin Wine, which mm -hmm. sounds different. And there was also a moonshine, old smoky pumpkin pie moonshine. And while I was looking at these, I, I struck gold and just found it all everything in one place. So they had like pairing ideas and they were obviously just trying to like generate clicks. So they were like, why not serve them in these lovely glasses on Amazon? And then it's like an affiliate link. So it was just yeah. And I just enjoyed the fact that the only one that had a pairing of some snacks was the moonshine. It was like, you're going to need to eat. Was it with sweets though? <laughs> no, it was like a kind of trail mix type thing. Like another oh, no, thing. no, that's not, that's not Halloween. No, it's not. No. Um, Pinnacle Pumpkin Spice Vodka was another one. Um, they just suggested a bunch of uh, cocktails to pour that in. Sure. I guess that I'd love to. Well, I wouldn't love to try it because I don't like them. But I'd imagine it'd be cool to do a pumpkin spice vodka in a Bloody Mary for Halloween. I mean, it's sure. Or in a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd rather that. <laughs> uh, so after finding all these delicious sounding pumpkin drinks that were not available in the UK, I mean, you could order them in, but it was crazy money. Uh, I tried my best to find one that was available in the UK, and that is a pumpkin spice chocolate li liquor by Mozart. Ah, yes, I've had Mozart. They are mm. delicious. So they have a pumpkin spice version now. Mm. That's the only one I could find UK. Um, actually, I've got a big star here in my notes. Could yep. not not mention pumpkin ales and beers. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna say, if you were, if you were done, I was like, May, I have had a lot of ales and ciders. Yeah, yeah. Pumpkin. The reason I didn't write any specific ones down because the best one I've ever had was the one I made, and when I say the best one I've ever had, it's because it had entertainment value. It didn't taste that good. Okay, As I was gonna be really know, shocked. I was gonna be really shocked if the news was you've made the best thing ever. No, I mean, we all know how good I am at making drinks. Sure, yeah. So I had been to a place in London called Brew, which isn't far from Everton Castle, I think. Okay. A little brewery, and I brewed my own pumpkin um, pale ale there. And I had to leave it for a few weeks for it to ferment and stuff. They were going to add the sugar for me and stuff. 
Uh, but they said like, come back, pick it up and take it home. But it it's going to need some time to kind of keep on fermenting and it might be a little bit active when you open it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I decided to give some to my dad and he put it in the house and I was like, mm, maybe put it down the shed. I, I, I don't mm -hmm. think he put it in the house because I'd driven back <laughs> from London with these in the back of my car and I could hear them fizzing. Oh no. Um, so I just said, like, please put them down the shed for my peace of mind. But dad being stubborn, he wouldn't. And he just put them in the corner of the front room and they just kept exploding. <laughs> <laughs> so that, to me, is the best pumpkin pale ale ever. Leary's exploding in pale ale. <laughs> that's very, um, like, hipster green goblin. Instead of throwing <laughs> exploding pumpkins at Spider-Man. You just kind of offer people beers that explode later on. I like it. But it was tasty. It, it was drinkable. Like, like my Prosecco and other things I've put myself through. It was good. Very nice. I've had, yeah, I couldn't name any specific, um, any specific ales, but around this time of year, they do pop up in the local craft places. And I generally like them. I think it's just a good flavour profile for, for yeah. um, multi ales. But I've noticed there's a lot more because it used to just be um, like pale ales and like craft mm. beers and stuff. But I did spot a pumpkin stout and a porter. Mm, so yeah. creeping in a lot more. Yeah, I think it goes well with the heavier multi, multi ones. Mm -hmm. I um, took a bit of horror films to round us off. Oh, yes, please. So I think everyone probably knows if you are a character in a horror film, you should not drink because like it's <laughs> gonna end badly for you uh scream summed it up very well in the 90s he said uh, the the rules are basic to survive any horror film you can never have sex you can never drink or do drugs and never ever under any circumstances say i'll be right back and if you've watched as many horror films as i have you know that is very true <laughs> many films in fact i watched one last night which was from which was after scream um it was 1999 but it was terrible it felt like it was from the 80s and the very first scene was yeah two young people sitting in a car probably about to have sex but before they do that the guy goes to the boo and gets out two bottles of beer brings them back they have a sip and then they instantly are killed by bats by rabid bats as you do, because you've just had a drink and you're not allowed to do it. That had nothing to do with the rest of the film. Um, <laughs> but they're just demonstrating. <laughs> if you drink an horror film, you are going to die. Um, okay. But this, as I found out, is mostly an American trope. Because you know how they like to say everything's sinful. You know, we've mm -hmm. seen kind of their, their sort of like madness towards going teetotal in official capacities. But then... You know, when it's the college experience, everyone goes wild and has too much and then bad things happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> and But it's funny because in Scream, like because they lay out the rules of these are the cliches of all the horror films we've seen up till now, obviously all of those rules are broken because that's the beauty of postmodern horror. Like Scream was one of the first postmodern horrors. So the lead character, the, you know, the final girl does have sex. She has sex with the murderer. Um, she drinks with them and yet still manages to survive. Whereas the killer, on the other hand, has sex, drinks, and says, I'll be right back and gets murdered. 
So it's like it, it, it in one way it inverts everything, but also you know like there is still the girl who went to get the beers out of the garage and um, got slaughtered <laughs> in the garage door. <laughs> so it's sort of like sometimes it plays by the rules and sometimes it doesn't, and that's the whole sort of postmodern twist of it. But it made me very aware, like watching that as a. I don't know when it came out. It's probably like about 15 or 16 or something. Made me very aware of all those tropes to look out for. And, and drink is definitely one of the judgiest ones. If you are a drinker in a horror film, you probably are not going to make it. I'm just thinking back to the last horror film we watched together. And yes. how many tropes are in there? <laughs> yes, quite a few. What was the last horror film we watched together? Uh, Larmageddon. Just briefly describe it for the listeners. Um, everyone's dead in the hot tub. <laughs> yeah. So there's um, it's just a llama has landed on Earth. It's an alien llama, and just goes about killing a bunch of teenagers living out in the middle of nowhere in America with his laser eyes. Yeah, because they are having a party which involves sex and drink. Exactly. So there you go. Um. One of my favourite directors, probably my favourite director, um, but of the kind of horror of, more master of suspense, but a bit horror, Hitchcock. He has a very different approach to uh, to drinking and to boozes in the films because he's an Englishman and it's much more respectable to be drinking. Other than, you know, not, <laughs> they have the same approach of Americans of it's a massive sin and you're going to make huge mistakes. For Hitchcock, it had several different meanings. Often, it was an indicator of class. So brandy was his favorite drink, and it makes a cameo almost as often as he does in his films. It's always a scene where he's having a brandy. Um, but often the people drinking the brandies are, um, they're sort of of a, of a social standing whereby they're kind of overlooking the scenario and they're gonna be the ones to figure it out. You see it a lot in Rear Window, for example. And there's a scene where there's three of them and they're all they're all drinking brandy, discussing kind of whether the guy that they can see over the other side of the courtyard, you know, out of out of the rear window is really a killer or not. And so you've got, you know, Grace Kelly walking out of the kitchen holding two big brandy glasses and she's just sort of swirling them. And if you are not looking at her boobs, you're a liar. And, you know, Hitchcock is doing this on purpose. He's like, the three of them are swilling these brandy glasses throughout the whole thing. And it's supposed to represent a bit of sexual tension as well as class differences because um, uh, Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly are, you know, getting it on, but they're getting it on out of any kind of real relationship or wedlock. And they're in his room that only has one single bed. And for the, the film censors at the time, that was a big no-no. Like, you were not allowed to show that kind of thing. But Hitchcock's like, I know how to get all the sex out of this um, film without becoming a fan of the censors. And the policeman who's round to kind of talk to them, is kind of like noticing all this sort of stuff. And he's swirling as well. And he's clearly very excited by the whole situation. But it's really funny because at the end of uh, the scene, uh, Grace and Jimmy are just kind of sipping their brandy and the policeman who's clearly agitated just chins it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not well, supposed that's... to do I thought you'd enjoy that moment. <laughs> um, and brandy's actually like the key, one of the key plot, well not plot points, but like the key MacGuffin in his film Murder, 
So someone's, you know, he does a lot of wrongful accusation stuff in his films and someone is wrongfully accused. And the person who figures out that she's been wrongfully accused does so, does so because he realizes that someone drank some brandy and he's like, ah, oh, whoever drank the brandy is the murderer. And you just keep finding brandy popping up again and again as this sort of clever clue. And yeah. there's, there's this scene actually in um, Easy Virtue, which is one of his earlier ones, where a woman is talking about um, her husband, like her husband who she's left being neglectful. And she's talking to her new boyfriend and her new boyfriend is sort of turned away from the camera making a cocktail at um, waist height. <laughs> you're like okay subtle subtle but the, and the thing is with um with all his boozing like a lot of the characters can boost to get overstaffed to show class to show sexual tension um and all sorts of things but it doesn't it's not necessarily a sign of sin so the people don't get punished for drinking there's yeah. like one film in particular which is the the killer's undoing that he's getting drunker and drunker as it goes on which is the film rope it's about an hour and a half or something long, and it's filmed in real time. The whole film is only done in four takes. So wow. you get like these really continuous pools. And they're having like a drinks reception at their flats. They invite all the people around, all the friends of the person they just murdered. And the person they've murdered is in a chest in the living room that they've covered with a tablecloth and they're serving the drinks and snacks from. Mm-hmm. And the guy is getting increasing, there's two of them, and one of them's getting increasingly nervous about, you know, what they've done and being found out and just gets drunker and drunker and starts to let things slip. So you sort of see the alcohol as this source of truth um, in this film. Yeah. So there's so many good drinking things throughout Hitchcock. So I had to mention him as an antidote to the sort of scream observation of American films that if you drink, you're going to die. Yeah, of course. And I want to go and watch Rope. Oh, it's one of my favourite films. It's really good. Watch that another time. Good on Halloween. Um, Suggestions for films if you don't want to drink brandy. Um, If you're a whiskey drinker, go for The Shining. Mm -hmm. Shining is, you know, Jack, he's a recovering alcoholic. He's in isolation in the hotel as a writer. And he's slowly losing his mind. He's not coping well (laughs) with solitude and sobriety. And, you know, he he goes to the bar and Im- imagines, maybe, we don't know whether it's all in his head or whether it's a spooky hotel or what's going on, um, that there's a bartender and he sort of says he'll pretty much sell his soul for, um, for a bourbon. Uh, so I think if you're a whiskey drinker, definitely The Shining. If you're mm-hmm. a vodka drinker, which we are not, but I'm going to recommend Nightmare on Elm Street because in the first film... Um, the the sort of final girl, Nancy, the one who's battling Freddy Krueger, her mum is a, a big vodka, straight vodka boozer all the way through. And knowing the rules of American horror, you're like, she's going to get it soon. She's going to get it soon. And it gets right to the uh, end of the film where you sort of Nancy has defeated Freddy and you think, oh, okay, well, I guess she didn't then. And it's like the very last scene, uh, her mum is seeing Nancy off in the school bus. And then all of a sudden, Freddie's arm comes through the glass of the door of, uh, and grabs her by the neck of Nancy's boozing, vodka-swilling mother. thus giving <laughs> rise to the sequel. But again, can't get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're a tequila drinker, it's got to be from dusk till dawn. Because so much of that film takes place when they've gone, you know, they're escaping over into the Mexican border. They end up in this 
vampire bar and tequila is being drunk in every scene, of course, because it's Mexico. So you can have mm-hmm. plenty of drinking games with your tequila along with uh, From Dust Till Dawn. Those are my recommendations for what to watch while you're drinking, but I will offer one more film because I was like, surely, surely there must be a film out there where drinking is definitely a good thing as a plot point. And then I remembered a few years ago that I'd seen an Irish film. (laughs) (laughs) And of course it's Irish called Grabbers, which came out in 2012. And the plot is it's set um, on an island off the coast of Ireland and they've been invaded by blood-sucking aliens. Okay. And the, the aliens are going after the blood, but they discover that they find alcohol toxic. So yeah. the way to survive, they get the whole village pissed <laughs> in the pub. Brilliant. <laughs> and then it's these drunk people fighting these aliens who won't want to suck their blood because it's full of alcohol. The premise is a lot funnier than the execution. <laughs> I will say that as a proviso. Like, it's a really good idea. It wasn't that good in reality. Like, it's it's trying to go somewhere towards, I think, Tremors as a film, and it doesn't quite make it. But, you know, it's still nice to have an example where boozing it up yeah. is your survival. Right, grabbers in the room. That's what I'm watching this Halloween. Did you say the, the room? room. <laughs> Not the room. <laughs> I mean, the room is, you know, it's equally upsetting, but not yeah. maybe. Right. I'm sure we've discussed the room on this podcast before, but um, yeah, <laughs> rope and grabbers. Yeah, there you go. Recommendations all round, with, along with uh, paired drinks to match. <laughs> mm-hmm. And maybe some zombies, if I can be asked. And maybe some zombies. <laughs> Any closing thoughts on the horrors of booze? I think it's great. It's not horrific at all. (laughs) (laughs) And so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to run up the stairs when we should be going straight out the door, then hide in the wardrobe armed only with a vase we got in the Habitat closing down sale, breathing heavily until our phone rings to tell us the pizza has arrived, and the killer smashes through the wooden slats, grabs us by the throat, and hurls us out the window onto the unsuspecting pizza delivery guy below, ruining the jardiniere and seven tubs of ice cream we'd ordered for Halloween movie night, thereby teaching everyone that it's wrong to enjoy the occasional beverage. Cheers, everybody! Cheers! (laughs) Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song, show me the way to go home.